0: And welcome to the Dice of Screaming podcast. Hey, hope you're having a good day. It's me, Randy.
1: And myself, Mike. Yeah,
0: and we're doing a podcast today. So, hey, thanks for tuning in and showing up. Uh, Yeah. That
1: escalated quickly. It did. (laughs) It always does. (laughs) Well, it is. It's more like it decelerated quickly. That decelerated quickly.
0: Oh, yeah. Lowered expectations.
1: Can you decelerate quickly?
0: Yes, it's called a sudden stop, running into a brick wall.
1: <laughs> ah, yeah, that's appropriate. That is highly appropriate uh, for the one-legged monk in a butt-kicking contest of <laughs> gaming podcasts. Yep,
0: bumbling, stumbling around, that's us. So, hey, hope you guys are doing good. Uh, hey, uh, just a little uh, little commentary. Uh, hope you bundle up out there. I hear it's going to be negative 45 today.
1: Oh, oh! I see what you did there. Yeah, minus, <laughs> negative, you know, minus forty-five. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, so that just happened. It just did, and uh, well, we're not above the occasional dad joke.
0: No. Hopefully, uh, you're having a good one. That's that's the main thing, and uh, yeah. So we had some call-ins. Uh, we did. Joe and Jason calling in and uh, talking a little bit about our uh, minis and theater of the mind, uh, what one adds up to the other. I think that...
1: Strengths and deficits of the two opposing core concepts. And and although they are radically different core concepts, I mean, uh, they are things that can kind of coexist wonderfully.
0: Yeah, but we're going to take it to Jason because he has a certain angle, I think, that... uh, we, we. I think we did a pretty good job of covering it, but it seems like, uh, always with Jason, we always seem to miss something, and he no, reminds no. us.
1: Yeah, and he really, he hit a point that I, I think we want to elaborate on.
0: So without further ado, take it away, Jason.
2: Jason here. Just want to say I enjoyed your latest episode. As far as theater of the mind or miniatures, yes, both. Of course, give me both. Although for online, I very much prefer Theater of the Mind, and I'll tell you why. In my experience, the more junk you have on your virtual tabletop, the more it turns into a video game MMO thing, and people are worried about, you, you know, exploring it like a video game, and they're worried about all kinds of stuff they don't need to worry about. Where with the Theater of the Mind, you don't have that problem now in person i'm fine with theater of the mind too but in person i love miniatures i love board games i love miniature war games so i love miniatures and games but virtually theater of the mind all the way so now well one more message so i guess my caveat to that is if you're playing a game that is tactical enough to require to really know the spacing like Pathfinder 1 or something like that where you really are worried about those things then yes have battle maps online do that it doesn't break anything it's fine i i not too long ago played in Joe Richter your other another frequent caller i played in his Pathfinder game and really enjoyed it using roll 20 with you know tokens and all that but for the most part if the game doesn't need it i don't want tokens online i don't want if you can at all run it fear the mind online that's what i want but in person yeah i I do like miniatures and scenery but it's not a requirement um I, i just find like i say the virtual tabletops tend to distract players from the story sometimes but great podcast look forward to your next one take care my friends all
0: right well yeah jason geez uh in our usual fashion we haphazardly kind of just Sure, he sure, really bumped against it and then went off to something else as we clutched our way around the subject.
1: Well, I, I did ramble a little bit, I, I kind of stumbled around. Yeah, but, but. uh, I, I gotta admit, I was just so happy to be back in the saddle. I mean, it was so nice to, to cast again that I <laughs> I got a little overexcited. It's fine, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> too much enthusiasm. Guy, <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that guy. I, I let's face it, folks. I, there, there's no point in concealing it or trying to hide or you know, like maintain any semblance of dignity. I literally spend most of my life uh, five seconds away from like pulling an archer and going, Airboat! <laughs> uh, you know, just that level of uh, overly intense enthusiasm uh, is really hard to check. But, no, oh, yeah, I, I gotta say, Jason made a good point there on, on the... Mm-hmm. The virtual experience, which has already lost the traditional at-the-table interpersonal connection, if you move out of theater of the mind and into uh, a really uh, product-heavy and image-heavy experience, you're taking more and more away from the interpersonal portion of the game uh, in a venue where it can ill afford to lose that much more. So it, it does kind of like clog things up and, and diminish the experience a little. Uh, and then of course you have like at the tabletop, that is the ideal setting to bring in all these extra things because the interpersonal connection is the foundation of the experience in that, you know, uh, at the table with your pals, uh, style you can afford to throw in all these other things and it diminishes nothing it actually just straight up adds to the experience so yeah I mean that was a, a perspective that i I think we would have we would have benefited from having thought of it at the time
0: well like <laughs> but, but, many things we definitely would benefit for some forethought rather than afterthought but hey you know that's just the nature of the beast you know, sometimes that's the way it goes and you know, taking all that with platitudes aside, I think it uh worked out really well that you were able to focus in on that for us, Jason. So thanks a lot for reminding us. So in no way is Gracias. that a yeah, is that a negative or like, oh hey, he, he said a thing that we didn't say. No, no. We're not that goof. No, no. We're not that guy who will just come out and like, Oh yeah, somebody else thought of something I didn't I but they must be wrong. Oh, how dare they? Oh yes, am right. I talking about somebody that's no longer on the radio anymore? Oh yeah oh yeah another one so yeah anyway yeah i'm in a festive mood so you're just gonna have to deal with it but thanks so much jason yeah and we really appreciate that because that's that's the kind of feedback that really gets us going it's like hey people not only listen to us but they think and you know show us like the things that we didn't get Hey, we get to talk about him again. So, thank you so much. Yeah,
1: I know. We that you know, that that has kicked off like a whole other episodes, ideas from other people that like came out of a like facet of, of the subject that we had not given due consideration to. We're like, "Oh my god, we totally have to do that." <laughs> yeah. Which is actually what I sound like when the podcast isn't on. I literally <laughs> yeah, I'm that bad. It's, he's, he's it's problematic at the best. He's actually times. worse, so I'm
0: kidding. All right. So, anyway, thanks again, Jason. Keep up the good work, man, and uh, stay safe out there. All right, and we're gonna move on to Joey. Joey Richter with sports. Good.
1: Or, or did he have the weather?
0: He might have had the weather and the sports. You know, he's doing that dual thing—weather on the eights, and then also sports.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. But yeah, Joey. Joey with the weather report. What's the look out there, up, Joey?
3: Hey, what's up, fellas? It's been a minute, but I'm still listening. Awesome episode on Theater of the Mind and uh, Maps and Minis. But, Randy, yeah, I was a little surprised to hear that you said Theater of the Mind was your favorite. As a Pathfinder guy, you know, a fellow Pathfinder guy, I usually run Pathfinder mostly with Maps, but sometimes Theater of the Mind, because I just find that Pathfinder really, really sings using maps and minis because there's so many feats and abilities that rely on exact spacing but yeah how do you run pathfinder do you usually run it with maps and minis obviously i haven't listened to the whole episode yet so maybe you cover this later and if you do ignore this (laughs) i'm getting back into the episode now all right boys take it easy
0: oh well uh yeah yeah uh, how do i do it well um well, uh, wow. So, I don't really know. I think that what I do is just basically set it up in my mind and I narrate it directly to my players, saying things like, well, if you move past the ogre, or if you're going to fight that ogre where he's standing right there, he's ready, uh, I'll tell them like, yeah, you need to watch out for that uh, attack opportunity from the reach. I also will tell things like there's a Crossbowmen with the ready to action, or halberdiers, uh, readied with their weapons in hand, and let the players figure it out for themselves. But a lot of times they just ask me questions, and I'm able to juggle it really well and uh, throw it right back at them. So,
1: yeah, with information, but I've seen you work in both mediums, man. Uh, when it comes to Pathfinder campaigns. There have been some key linchpin, extremely complicated moments that totally merited busting out the maps and the minis, but most of the time, winging it old school style, uh, bringing the old school, no frills touch to, you know, a newer game. I mean,
0: yeah, because we we used to spend so much time. I mean, even though I'm the miniatures guy, just you know, uh, lugging them around and keeping all that kit. Available and useful, and every time you play with it, you know, you break it a little bit more, you know, it wears down.
1: I'm keen on the maps and the grease pencil.
0: Yeah, I I like the uh, I like Big the maps, but I also, again, it takes a little bit to do right, and I have the problem, even though it's gridded and hexed, of having uh, the abil- inability to draw a straight line without a ruler.
1: Oh... Yeah, all right, fair enough. And
0: then I'm all fussy pants about when I draw a map, I want it to be good. Because, you know, you got that workmanship. If you're going to do something, then do it right. And it takes
1: time to do it. And so, again. Oh, I'm actually pretty slapdash. If I got it, like, I need a representation of a cave that's 40 by 30, and, you know, there's going to be one, like, roper, like, at a particular location. I yeah, I'm, I'm pretty crude. It's all extremely slapdash. right? And However, like- it's proportionately correct. You know, the the 10-foot markers and things mm-hmm. like that. Like, you know, obviously, uh, you may not be able to get it right down to the inch, but I, I, I usually just make it mm-hmm. good enough that measurements will be accurate for combat. And then no extra frills. I barest possible minimum. Uh just to make it really clear, when you have something like a, a roper, which yeah. has like, the long strands, uh, you know, players will very quickly, uh, you know, run into like, oh, uh, that's not where I meant to be. Like, well, unfortunately, you were in, you know, the approach uh, <laughs> to that exit. And it's a 40-foot room and like a 60-foot strand, so... You're hosed. There is no place in this room that you cannot be grabbed. I, you know, those conversations come up, and, and that's, that's what those maps and careful markings are for. But if you've got a really adept mind, and you know, like this guy across from me does. Oh. Yeah,
0: I just juggle it, man. I, I try to think about how to answer this appropriately, and you know? all I could come up with is, I don't know. <laughs> I just do it and it, it, it's kind of one of those things where when you're pressed to do something you don't know how good you are until you actually are in that moment and I maybe that's a, a way to put it and also I yeah I'm really a, a downer on myself I, I'm a, my own buzzkill because when I draw something on a map and it looks to me not up to what I would consider stand my standards then yeah it just draws me down and so I find it gets me depressed. And I'm not there when that's I'm gaming to use, be depressed.
1: That's why I use humor. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, to me, uh, there are occasions where it's like watching uh, Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man. You know, it's like, I want to take this guy to Vegas if they ever have high-stakes gaming. Uh, you know, he, he, he'll say, yeah, I'm a very good driver. Uh, maybe maybe not so good with all the other stuff, but, like, you get him, like, in front of a set of dice. and a DM screen. And some magical stuff happens. It is... Freaking amazing.
0: Well, I would like to think that I'm good at more than just one thing, but all right. I mean, hey, I guess well, I got to be the rain man. I'm actually a pretty good driver, but oh well. Yeah. Hey, uh, you know, I'll take it. I on
1: it. I just wanted to get in a
0: rain man reference. Well, you did. I, wow. Wow. I'm just get kicked in the butt on the way out. Um, Take that! Urgh. The compliment and the punch. Okay,
1: I'm famous for those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's
0: like driving. You know, if you were a drive-through uh, clerk, you throw the take the money from them and then throw the food right in their face. Like here you go. Uh, enjoy it. Have a good day. Oh, this is a really good cheeseburger you threw me. Uh, oh wow, it's the best cheeseburger I've ever had. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Tough love. All right, well, yeah, <laughs> thanks a lot, Joe, and uh, yeah, uh, we'll get you back on to sports, because I think uh, that's where A you're... more
1: accurate representation of my conduct would be... Hey, dude, I'll have you know, you smell a lot better than the other burning dumpsters that I know. Oh, okay, thanks. Yeah, that, that would be a Mike moment. Uh, you know what's happening when... Uh, my compliments always sting like bleach. You know, just... Uh, all right, so we got
0: all our call-ins done, so we're gonna go quickly right into our topic. So we've been threatening you with this, and so finally here it is. The yes. moment has arrived. Our talk about our science fiction giants trilogy, and uh, we oh. talked before about yes. HG Wells, Verne and and uh, the early days. Oh, uh, the pioneers, Shelly. yep, the pioneers of science fiction.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, you know, to us it was an important and beloved topic because. Uh, <clears throat> Given that we love fantasy fiction and speculative fiction, which uh, really flowed into 20th century prominence thanks to science fiction, uh, it was just really essential to touch the beginnings of Protean science fiction uh, as an art form, as as a popular genre. And now we get to the chewy center, you know, the, the giants that bestrode the earth.
0: Yeah. And this really applies a lot to gaming from just more than just our speculations, just more than like, okay, well, you know, it's tangentially connected to horror or early steampunk or, you know, which was a later, I guess what you would want to call it a development. Yeah. subgenre. Subgenre. Okay. Yeah. That's much more appropriate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This applies a lot more to the science fiction we're familiar with in our gaming circles, uh, particularly Traveller. Oh, very much so. Yeah, this is this is where we're at. So we're no, going to start out by just, we're just going to come right on and just say the big three, is what we're going to cover here. And this is such a, uh, the period between 30s, the or late 40s specifically, and the 70s. And we're going to skip two little uh, events in this and touch on it on at a later date which we've kind of already hinted at with the cyberpunk. But, yeah, yeah, let's go with the uh, enough teasing. The big three, uh, of course, out of this genre, this era of science fiction, this is when everything exploded was, in our opinions, Asimov, Clark, and Hanlon.
1: Yeah, and they're famous. I mean, they're often referred to as the big three when people are talking about science fiction online and in literary discussions. They are the big three of that early era of what we start thinking of as modern hard science fiction, uh, you know, which is to be distinguished from the more speculative, you know, uh, Duke Blastom Yeah, well, goes what, to Mars. Like we know.
0: said, with E.E. E. Doc Smith and A.E. Van Gout uh God. <laughs> sorry, never never heard his name pronounced, so I'm just uh, stabbing it at the names here. But those guys were great science fiction writers. I Really loved the Lensman uh, series. So they deserved their own treatment, perhaps at a certain point in time. Because E.E. Yeah. Uh, e. Darksmith inspired people like Asimov and even Clark and Hanlon. But we also have to mention in this uh, Bradbury and Jerry Purnell and Larry Niven, because this was that uh, little circle. I don't want to say little, because... Wow, Purnell wrote for uh, papers for NASA and uh, yeah. advised presidents. I mean, um, and also we would also talk. Uh, be remiss click if we didn't talk about the ladies of science fiction at that time, which was uh, Andre Norton.
1: Oh, yeah. Um,
0: uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley.
1: Very much so, yes.
0: And even, uh, is it Kent? Catherine Kerr, isn't it? With the, uh, oh, Yes. Which, Catherine Kerr. And you go into what, uh, Anne McCaffrey's novels with the Dragon Riders. Yeah. It, those are, uh, those are two blends of kind of <laughs> science fiction fantasy, but they are science fiction when you take where their origins were, like the dragons are engineered. Uh, yes. The Dureni are, uh intentionally uh, technologically stunted people that keep a certain level of technology down so that they can practice their psionic arts. Yeah,
1: there's a bunch of other tiny little, you know, uh, lesser known names as well. But, I, you know, we we really wanted to dedicate this episode to the three enormous giants. Uh, you know, like where all of these were, all of the people that we have mentioned have been components and important parts and, you know, people we think very highly of. But, uh, at the end of the 1930s through the 1940s, and especially post-World War II as, you know, America, you know, went back to peacetime and these, you know, three individuals uh, began to focus their time and effort on their writing, uh, it brought us to a point in the 1950s where their greatest works started to emerge— uh, and, yeah,
0: and you know Isaac Asimov. We're just going to start
1: with him. We're okay here. One of my favorite people of all time. I'm a big fan of Isaac Asimov overall because he was a legendary skeptic. Uh, and <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, his book, Isaac Asimov's Chronology of the World, is one of the most approachable books covering the entire history of the Earth up until the 1940s. Uh, and (laughs) it is uh, very tongue-in-cheek and filled with uh, relatively precise dating for the creation of uh, all of what we think of as the great works of art uh, from around the world.
0: Yeah, he didn't just focus on Western culture. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, the great masterpieces of art worldwide, the great accomplishments of architecture worldwide, Uh, the progression of science uh, and of scientific discoveries, Uh, you name it, it probably gets a little nod or a mention at the appropriate point in time and place. So Mr. Asimov, he was all over the place, not just a science fiction writer, but...
0: Oh, yeah, even, you know, dabbled in fantasy and even detective and mystery, so... And, you know, also horror. Oh, Absolutely. He was, um, he had his own uh, digest, which kind of leads to the next person we're going to talk about that uh, kidded him a lot. But, um, but we, we have to mention that where we're coming down on this is the Foundation trilogy. Now, yeah, uh, again, when we talked about the ladies of science fiction, those early writers who helped not only pioneer but forge places for women to have a, a place in that genre. Also mentioned is Frank Herbert. Now, why is it Frank Herbert higher? Well, just like with Bradbury, which is another guy that like, hey, what, you guys miss Bradbury, The Martian Chronicles? Yeah, one of my favorite uh, little oh, trilogies.
1: Yeah, yeah we love we love them too. Uh, and I'm, but they're very excited.
0: kind of like one hit. And Bradbury's all over the place, man. That guy looks like, I don't think and there thus was the in-
1: huge fingerprint on both uh, other people's literature on television in magazines. Uh, you know, uh, this is why the big three are the big three. They they had a subtly widespread impact beyond the realm of science fiction readers. Uh, they they had, like, kind of global impact.
0: Yeah, and all these, uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, I mean, we're waiting for the movie to come out. Uh, however, it's going to be viewed. Again,
1: other than, like, our 45th Dune iteration, you know, everybody does a Dune now, you know. Everybody
0: oh, well, name. I would like to say that, uh, well, I like David Lynch's. It was far from perfect, and uh, the science fiction I sci-fi one.
1: Alan Smithy, sir.
0: Yes. <laughs> I would also like to say that uh, the sci-fi networks, while it's a little bit more faithful, was... Well, uh, we can see where the budget went into this one, was writing, not the wardrobe or specs. But, hey, you know, it yeah. is what it is. But anyway, yeah, uh, Dune is very... Uh, very much a part of science fiction, and it's a great trilogy. Well, uh, septology now. I mean, and plus all the ancillary stuff that's come out after uh, Herbert's pass, mm-hmm. and his son and uh, has been writing the uh, and another author. Jeez, can't remember. Kevin. No. No, I, I, yeah, I, I, I pull you
1: up short, but you know, like uh, you were talking Foundation trilogy and and you know that's like the the central work of Asimov. Right.
0: And you know just like Dune it has a great impact but you know if you were if that's all he wrote maybe we wouldn't mention him as much. Oh, and my Bradbury, God, yeah. you know, yeah, did a lot more, but we have to take time because the the 60s and 70s where these books primarily hit the mark and expanded out. Yeah, they, they resonated quite large in the science fiction genre. And the Foundation trilogy uh which is kind of too massive to even talk about without sounding like you're having a mental breakdown.
1: You, All right, I'm, I'm gonna let you have that one. Yeah, because I mean, the,
0: it, it is, it's phenomenal, and probably if you needed to get it summarized summarized in a game standpoint, Traveler's pretty much based off of a shadow of what he mentioned as far as the the empires rising and falling.
1: Yeah the the. Necessities of managing and maintaining a fractious, uh, you know, intergalactic uh, communication network. Uh, the idea of being able to work interdependently, despite overwhelming difference, you know, distances being involved, at you know, address in a I think slightly more traditional way than say, for instance, Mister Herbert did, uh, but the speculation of interstellar exploration and colonization uh, was, I I think, a big hallmark of all of the big three. Okay, that was... Oh, yeah, definitely. That was the linchpin. Like, what shape will it take? What direction is it going to go? Uh, How will will we affect this? Uh, And what will be the consequences? I mean, will our behaviors change appropriately as we, you know, gain a a certain perspective uh, about the universe, or are we going to just make the same grand mistakes with a larger stage to perform them on? (laughs) Right, and that's much like the cosmic
0: background radiation that's uh, permeating the entire universe. Asimov's foundation trilogy looms large above all because Almost anybody who had read or tried to utilize a science fiction empire has to compare themselves to that. So, that's why yeah, he's that's... the big three. And plus, his volume of work, just outside of...
1: Oh, we got to throw in iRobot. Well, oh, oh, right. Smith. and yeah, Never mind the Will Smith movie. Will Smith, terrific actor. Uh, very fun to watch. Cute movie. Yeah, great movie. Not really anything...
0: That right, you... and then, you know, the iRobot on top of that. And thank you for that segue. But...
1: Asimov's three laws of robotics are still quoted to this day, and his fictional positronic brain for robots. Uh, you may recall that term from data in Star Trek, mm-hmm. the positronic brain. That was a nod to Mr. Asimov. A uh, little, little hat tip from the guys at Star Trek.
0: Right, and one of the uh, Asimov's great detractors and critics was, of course, the next person, which is Arthur C. Clarke. Now, of course, they were, like everybody in that time you kind of knew everybody because you ended up meeting at conventions and things like that but yeah a lot of uh, people think that they were really angry at each other well they no. were definitely uh, no. they're at odds of over a few different approaches on this uh, writing styles.
1: A, a better thing would to say would a better thing to say would be to uh, describe them as having very different points of view as both being futurists uh, of, of some skill, and they often differed publicly, but it was never with malice. It was not a thing like, "Oh, I hate that guy," you know. It just, no, that that is not what that was about.
0: Yeah, that was Harlan Ellison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate that guy. Yeah, everybody hated him, you know, or he seemed to hate everybody else. But yeah, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, of course, we know primarily through. Uh, Two thousand and one, two thousand and ten, and that little uh, yes series, a Space
1: a- Odyssey series, which uh, you know the idea of uh, and our uh, first steps this prior is, to that, yeah, our baby steps out into a wider universe and the realization that life elsewhere is statistically a near certainty. Uh, yeah, but again, with that traveler, <laughs>
0: the ancients show up in tra- the ancients that show up in traveler are. Directly inspired by Clark.
1: Yes. Uh, again, yeah, Traveler, you like pulled from all the best. Okay. I mean these guys were inspired by you know, just the finest vintage Yes, like, Yeah, that's that's why
0: we hold Traveler in a great esteem, is not because
1: Not because we had a great time getting our characters killed during creation. Oh so. yeah there i had yeah. to go there again yeah uh, but but because like if you've read these books and then you read like a traveler manual from the early days and you're you're learning of the imperium and uh you, you begin to see all these roots and you know common links well like the
0: oh. the dark over novels with the uh zodani and uh from uh mary and zimmer bradley yeah, start to understand that the those who are psionic view themselves differently, and you really have to put yourself in that mindset. And thank you for science fiction for providing those allegories for also racism and discrimination in our, and even sexism in our uh, societies. Those yeah. that allow us to examine those from a different lens.
1: Yeah, and, Clark was a perfect example of of uh, you know person who. Uh, came out of a high science background. I mean, oh yeah, know, just he had very super you know, literate sp- space, uh, and you know, like the exploration of space, the eventual building of satellite networks. You know, the the core concepts that would drive uh, the actually, but I believe some of his work was uh, like end of the forties, very beginning of the fifties. Uh, he was not so much like publishing the novels, per se, as he was publishing professional papers that were on, uh, you know, professional books on the potential future for space exploration. How would it be undertaken? What would be the requirements? Uh, you know, even as that technology was evolving, uh, he was right there at the forefront of it. Uh, and that was what he was better known for until his... Literary works became considered a, you know, more substantive portion of his career. Mm-hmm. Now he's remembered by us sci-fi buffs as the guy who did, two thousand one, but
0: also Rendezvous with Rama. Yes, which, coming later. Yeah, but yeah, not maybe as prolific as uh, Asimov, where Asimov was hyper literate. Clark was super focused into the scientific astrophysics. Oh yeah, and aeronautics. In, incredibly,
1: uh, you know, in, in spite of writing speculative science fiction, uh, in some respects, uh, he had such a hard science background that uh, it it distinguishes him as somewhat different uh, from the other authors. He didn't really. He was not a pro- prolific. What you think of as a full time professional story writer? I make stuff up. That that wasn't really his total focus. You know. Yeah, and. Man of science.
0: Yeah, and that's where, like, when we had the Dune podcast, and we talked specifically about the impact of that novel, and that was also still purely speculative. There was not a lot of hard science. There was allegories to, like, the thinking machines and things like that. But here you have iRobot from Asimov that really takes you right to the nitty-gritty, the dark, ethical ideas of having... Slaves. This is really what if you make a thinking machine and you make it to be a slave in a sense, then what
1: are you? Yeah, you have already violated uh, you know, your relationship with it <laughs> uh,
0: right out of the gate. And so that's an important ethos to mention right there, and you know, what what the implications of this mean going forward. And of course, uh we talked about Parnell and uh Oh, uh, Larry Niven, who are also prolific in their own right. But now we're going to come around to yeah, talking the, about the super the, the uh,
1: third of the big
0: three. Yeah, talking about the third of the big three. Talking about the super literate is uh, in the very focus. Here's a guy who was a military officer during World War. Well, he was discharged during
1: World yeah, War. II. A lot of them were actually. Uh, yeah, of these uh, guys. but
0: he was he was quite quite the guy. Uh, Robert Heinlein, uh, you know, he was uh, during his career after the Cold after his dismissal from the Navy, you know, he was brung into uh, kind of spitball, like how we are going to handle kamikazes? And, you know, he wrote in a little uh, novel, I may have heard of it, Starship Troopers, where he started to really focus in on how things might work out. And, you know, here is, he's called the dean of science fiction. And I think what he had, uh, didn't he have a, much like Clark, I think Park, Clark suffered from polio?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, Clark was a polio survivor. Right, right. Uh, He had late effects, uh, tragically uh, late effects from uh, post-polio survival uh, crippled him much later in life. And another tragedy of Isaac Asimov is that it's not generally widely known, uh, but he passed from AIDS-related complications because of a blood transfusion. Uh, He had had a bypass surgery in 1983, And HIV had gotten into the blood supply because, you know, frankly, uh, for years after people knew that it was a thing and that it was an issue, uh, almost no real major federal effort was underway uh, until you got into the late 80s. So uh, it had crept into the blood supply and the complications from that eventually uh, took Isaac Asimov's life. But uh, Clark was a polio survivor.
0: Yeah, and Heinlein was also had pulmonary tuberculosis. Oh, Which man. led to his discharge from the Navy. But anyhow, you know, uh, he would go on to write just
1: numerous things,
0: Stranger in Strange Land.
1: Which, I mean, that, boy, as an early work. Mm. Um, and I, I want to say this about Heinlein. Because uh, um, I know that he is a contentious character and that there are many people who are... Uh, given an impression that they should be offended by some of his works. Uh, I'd like to think of Robert H- Hanlon as the first troll before the Internet. I mean, just a literary troll of surpassing skill. Uh, because, and subtle. Yeah. One, he wasn't really writing because he greatly cared what you thought. Uh, He was there to challenge conventions and perceptions, and if an idea interested him, he followed it through to the end and expressed it in a science fiction genre. uh, Because science fiction always gives us this opportunity to examine current world problems through the lens of some distant, faraway place. And that distance between our here and now and this subject makes it more palatable. We're able to handle it. Whereas, if we think about it right here, in the here and now, uh, we have more visceral reactions and we refuse to address them. Now, people often mistook the fact that he wrote a book about a thing as, well, then you must unilaterally believe it because you wrote a book about it. He wrote a piece of science fiction. Yeah, and that's
0: the the thing where I, I agree it's with him having the theory. dean is... Uh, the, giving the title to Dean because he questioned. He, he wasn't writing to make you believe what he thought. He was asking you to question your own beliefs Yeah. and come forth with a valid explanation. Now, that high-mindedness aside, heck, uh, he probably did a lot more to influence some of the early game creators. Uh, Traveler 2300 AD is probably more Hanlon than Asimov or Clark. And yeah. that's because he was very much into that political militancy that uh, that he experienced in the Navy, that time when the country kind of came together that he's seen, uh, where it looked like a lot of things could really happen if we harness the potentiality of all the people being focused to destroy a singular enemy. And much happens in 2300, if you're familiar with that uh, travel 2300 A.D. Um, but I digress on that. I also like uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress was uh-huh. another. Yeah. That's I... another good one.
1: Uh-huh. That did, again, hit that political... I Starship one. Troopers. Um, oh, yeah. Well, like, not because of the movies, right. uh, obviously. I, I, You know, like, all right, again, it's another one of those moments where, you're like, ah, cute movie, but you should really read the book.
0: Yeah, uh, really take time out.
1: You know, it was well worth the reading. I'm not the least bit sorry that I, I gave it, you know, some time because that... Uh, it was an examination, an examination of different ideas, and... Uh, However offensive some of those ideas may be to people, uh, there's also critiques of those ideas themselves inside the very same book. You know, it is not a drum-beating touting of like, here's the perfect answer for utopia. No, not at all. It is a thoughtful examination of the pros and cons of various ways of governance. Uh, And you know, military and political relationship aside. Mm -hmm. I I thought it was a very astute book. uh, And certainly worth other people's time. So uh, if if knee-jerk reaction tells people that they should not read this, I I beg to differ. You know, give yourself the experience. Uh, And Stranger in a Strange Land. Oh, Yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah I think that out of all the things that I dislike touching religion is one of them and I've often made the statement that stranger to strange land is the story of Christ told without religion and people are like well you know there's an orgy scene in there yeah free love uh, that was one of the things that he was kind of introducing was like the conventions we held ourselves to stifle us as development as beings not only of you know, physical but also spiritual, spiritually, uh, close us off to the potentiality of what we can experience. And there's that big question again,
1: you yeah, like a 10,000 year old, uh, remnant of, uh, you know, property settlement, yeah, uh, you know, uh, does not necessarily make a good 20th century paradigm, uh, you know, for the, the resolution of,
0: some yeah. And of the course. development and growth of the human race yeah. beyond just the, the standards of living on one planet.
1: Like, uh, you know, I mean, if you've got to find a way to keep track of who owns what mud hut and what patch of scraggly corn, uh, yeah, then these are some incredibly vital traditions. But that's not us anymore.
0: Yeah, and also didn't question traditional monogamy. It was completely voluntary. Like, yeah. if you love somebody and that's who you want to give and devote yourself to, then so be it. That's a, But that's a valid choice that you made rather than an expectation that you have to fulfill. And so, yeah, if if I wax eloquently about it, it's because reading that book challenged my views of how I viewed not only uh, life and society going forward, but also religion. And I was like, well, this is one heck of a little novel. I I mean... That's a
1: lot of punch for a slender volume, doesn't it? And so...
0: (laughs) But, That's why I have a, a soft spot for
1: Hanlon. Yeah, challenging convention, which, again, uh, is a facet of classical science fiction, or, or what we think of as, yeah. like, the great science fiction, makes you ask questions. Or, and it, it's not intended to guide you to a guaranteed conclusion. It's simply made to break you out of the box in which you, like... Uh, I perceive that this is the way things have always been and should always be, and then here comes this, out of the out of the blue, crazy little thing called science fiction that makes you go, "Oh, why is it that we do that?" Right. I, I don't even know why now that I think about it. Why do we do that?
0: Right. And I, I, we will. I promise we will cover Ringworld because uh, I really love Larry Niven's books. Oh, and, sure. uh Jerry Pernell's stuff, and even Greg Bear and some of the other guys that Berserk right Berserk Bear, Forge of God. Yeah, Forge of God. There's some good stuff in there. But here's what oh, Mike was talking about Mary Dariah Russell's The Sparrow. i, I got to get that. Oh, out okay. Someday. Yeah. Yes. Uh, our good friend Robert gave us a couple uh, novels as well.
1: Oh, my God. Uh, no, all right. I'm going to save this. Give me a signal when we are approaching uh, wrap up. Year. I, I just want to say that um, this is
0: what Mike was on is I'm getting out of the box. Is this is my big push for this year? Is getting into science fiction a little bit more. And yeah, I know that I've had start I worked with Starfinder and some other ones, but I'm going to be playing a lot more Traveller. And in that sense, I've kind of come around to rereading some of my classic science fiction books. And a lot of people have said in the gaming industry that fantasy seems to predominate. And while there's nothing wrong with Dungeons and Dragons, Rune Class, Pathfinder, all that stuff, the great worlds love to play them. Okay, yeah. But it, it's also what I was saying, break out of the box a little bit and start thinking about science fiction. Science fiction role-playing games haven't traditionally done well because people just want that sword and board sort of experience where personal honor and combat and even fighting fell sorcery provides you with that good versus evil schematic. And science fiction is challenging us and with the thing with cyberpunk uh, 2077 all the controversy that stirred up and also the return of cyberpunk red to the tabletop in a brand new format hey it would really never left a lot of people like Seth gorkowski kept playing it but oh, sure. it, they are good examples of where science fiction can take you for not only just speculative fiction and imagination but also for gaming opportunities and that's Kind of the thing that I wanted to bring in is that there's, I got so many ideas just rereading the Foundation trilogy that I just had to go play Traveler. <laughs> and it wasn't because, like, Asimov wrote this for Traveler, but just so many things that I oh. uh, oh, forgot. The
1: Foundation trilogy is like the Velvet Underground's like, eponymous first album. Yeah, like, and again, and, I, I can't talk about it. Everybody who bought a copy went out and started their own band. And, like, everybody who read Foundation went, oh my God, I gotta create a space universe it just it yeah, has it, that effect it's that good
0: yeah and i can't talk about it without i could barely talk about doing without sounding like i'm having some kind of episode <laughs> dude art do you are do you have medications are they working are you doing okay over there no i'm talking about the quizart Art
1: don't leave me alone if you have these problems spice might be right for you <laughs> consult your physician yeah if you had to explain Dune cold <laughs>
0: I'll fight you on this one. You you would literally be almost begging to be institutionalized.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it is. Uh, it does come out like schizophrenic rambling. I, <laughs> so, I admit that.
0: And speaking from the masses, of rambling. So here's that. Uh, you wanted that little wave off but Go ahead.
1: Okay. Uh, we lost a giant, a hidden giant of science fiction this week. A uh, lot of... A uh, lot of... Sad uh, posts from a lot of folks in the science fiction and writing communities uh, and the fantasy fiction communities because Storm Constantine, one of my personal favorite authors, passed away a few days ago uh, after a lengthy illness. And it was like, I do not believe COVID related, uh, you know, but... She was not one of, of course, the ancient giants of science fiction about which we are speaking, but I bring her up because she passed away so very recently. Uh, And I... It is almost more than I want to tackle at this time, because it was so profoundly important to me at the time that I stumbled across one of her early works. Uh, But She began as a short story uh, fiction writer doing science fiction and then branched out into more fantastic fiction uh, and wilder speculative fiction. Uh, Then she drifted to mysticism and wrote books on, uh, you know, ancient religions uh, and ancient uh, esoteric traditions. So... She was also an avid publisher of other authors. Uh, as soon as she had enough clout to branch off on her own and create a publishing label, she promptly did so. Uh, and she was an enormous inspiration to a lot of other younger writers. And while she emerged out of the, you know, 1980s, I I noticed that a lot of her oculates, uh, a lot of her, you know, Uh, pupils and associates, uh, you know, developed their talents, partly owed to her creating a vehicle that would publish inventive new science fiction authors uh, and fantasy fiction authors in the 20th and early 21st century, uh, because we saw a diminishment in the number of publishing houses that would actively push science fiction and fantasy fiction. Uh, and she responded to that by really coming out swinging and saying, hey, instead of bemoaning our fate, let us build our new paths. Uh, and that—that that is, to me, a big chunk of her legacy. Uh, and in the finest tradition of people like uh, Robert Hanlon, uh, she often challenged stereotypical perceptions of things, you know, the, the rote, uh, familiar uh Way in which we look at the world uh, was often turned upside down and torn apart and re examined in some of her works. Uh, I highly recommend her, uh, but I profoundly mourn her passing. I feel very fortunate that I had gotten a few occasions to correspond with her over the years, uh, and I really was caught by surprise because I I did not expect, I did not know that she was ill. So I had no idea that uh, this week was going to be the last week that she was going to be with us. But that's it. Uh, Storm Constantine, big hero to me. Oh, all right.
0: Yeah, that was, We all... Uh, mourn her passing. Uh, we are lesser for... Her absence now, but... Yeah, uh,
1: another time I will discuss her works properly, but it's a little too close to the bone, and this is the end of the show, and this was a show about something else, so...
0: Yeah, we just wanted to uh, ramble on incoherently. uh, Oh, well, we're good at that. About... The three greats in science fiction and it's just really hard to talk about it without having to talk about other people And so we did talk about other people But we wanted to focus on the big three their contributions and why they are the big three and I think And I hope that we did well And so let us know if you if we miss the mark. and of course we will be covering some other ones you notice that we didn't talk about Philip K. Dick uh, Norman Spinrad my personal favorite and Harlan Ellison. We'll get back to that and go more forward as we wind the trilogy up into the modern era, as we call it.
1: <laughs> yes, the the generation of writers that you know came into being just after the cusp of early success for the big three uh, became, uh, frankly, the staples of like massive science fiction publishing. So, a lot of those side names we mentioned, you know, they're enormously important to modern science fiction, uh, but we, we just wanted the underpinnings. Like, the pe- the three people who hit it out of the park and scored big and kind of paved the way. Yeah, that nuclear and,
0: explosion of and science fiction. they were all fiction.
1: great about paving the way for other authors. Yes. Opening, you know, creating magazines of their own and encouraging people. That, like, hey, let's hear your new ideas. Okay, they were not stifling. Like, I have spoken. There is nothing more to be said. This is the way. You will all obey now. No. The big three had a a terrific sense of, you know, the creativity that this brings about in other people is something to be. Right. Because
0: as we set the tone for the first episode, we had mentioned about how pulp as we were ending it opened up all the avenues for what was later to be this massive mega, nuke explosion of science fiction all over the place. and Yeah, and and I promise, yes, we will do the Battlestar Galactica episode at some point in time. Oh, my goodness. We really should. I'm just kidding. I, no, but well, okay. You think we should? I was... Dude,
1: I why would we not? I mean, you know, we were there at the time that that exploded on television. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. All right. I
0: was doing the, the office routine. We will do a Battlestar Galactica episode. I promise you.
1: Well, I... No, I don't care. But can we not talk about the second season? So, just talk about the first season.
0: All right, yeah, well, you know what? We'll okay. we'll, we'll arm wrestle over it. But right. anyway, uh, yeah, we hope we you enjoyed our little uh, rambling discussion about the big three. Uh, we obviously had to cover a huge area of the science fiction literature.
1: Yeah, I'm actually all, like, unsatisfied... Overall, because there is so much just to cover the big three, we had to like yeah, we ignored
0: Fred like, Saberhagen's Berserker yeah, and like
1: well, and even discussing the big three, we had to leave out like ninety yeah. percent of anything we could have said about the big three. Yeah,
0: maybe we'll come back and talk about the ladies of science fiction the, the, and some of their great works. Yeah,
1: because I mean that's an entirely separate, worthwhile on. You know, honestly, we we could do individual author nights yeah. uh, in science fiction, and that would be more open for us to cover these properly. Uh, but we, we did want to get the names out there and show our
3: profound respect. Yeah,
0: and really. also, uh, if, uh, I know somebody will probably pick this up. We didn't talk about El Sprague de Camp because both, obviously, uh, he's connected with the Conan franchise, but he also did a lot of science fiction as well. Oh, and yeah. And He was so,
1: a contemporary and associate and a fellow soldier. Uh, yeah, so
0: um, we will do an episode on uh, Sprague de Camp. The one who shall not be named, you know who we're talking about. We'll never, ever talk about any of his science fiction. And yeah, it's a male. Uh, uh, Ever. So if anybody ever asks about, why don't you do Battlefield Earth, man? Because that's, yeah. um, I have a place for you to go. And uh, you can just go. I'm not
1: actually afraid to talk about it. I just don't
0: think it's. It's like Voldemort. We just don't name him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we, yeah, of course we to, did.
1: i willing to talk about the books, but uh, I, I just didn't think that they were all that good.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you.
1: Hey. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, ended it on that note. We'll,
0: uh, We'll uh, wind this in and put it in the crowd. Hey, thanks a lot for listening, folks. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, because, yeah, we probably should after this. But you guys, are you guys on meds? Are you doing okay over there? Yeah, we appreciate those phone calls. <laughs> and speaking of that, you can download the Anchor app and, you know, take out that uh, subscribe button, that little like, and uh, favorite our podcast. And you can get updates
1: and all then, the time. You know, pick it up, mm-hmm. you take it, and first, you carefully construct... A box of clear plastic. Then you place it inside the box with a little bit of water uh, and a few plants, and then you you close it, and it forms like a little self-sealing environment. And the plants grow, and you know, like the the they resupply their own water, and uh, yeah, do that to the button. Yep, give it a training because it's been through a lot,
0: and it's been a hard year, and it's a new year, so help it out. Is it'll take you. In the long run. And so we appreciate that. And, of course, as always, you can get a hold of us on Facebook or Twitter, which uh, the Twitter hunt, uh, as I said before, I, I'm going to give up on it. No. Hey, you guys showed me a lot of love there, so thanks a lot. So always keep those coming in. You know where to find me there. And, of course, you can find this cat. Magi Vox. Yeah, on Twitter. So, hurrying him about his non-Twitter presence. And, uh, uh, also, yeah. and also on our Facebook page, The Dice Are Screaming. So, With no further ado, thanks a lot for our first full New Year podcast on a brand new subject that we wanted to really get in and cover. So until next time,
3: may the dice always roll in your
0: favor. We're out. See ya.